When my co-director, I co-directed the film with Joanna Hamilton, my colleague, she came to me with the book, uh, Rose Life of Mrs. Rose Park by Jean Theo Harris. And she was like, you know, would you be interested? Take a look at this, read this. And would you be interested in working with me on this? And I read the book and exactly that, what you just outlined, the fact that we did not know the full story of the sacrifice that she made, the threats, the backlash that she faced, the economic insecurity for most of her life, um, the sidelining of uh, her work as as a woman uh, in the in the movement. It was all revelatory and and so important to tell the story and her militancy. Um, as well. So all those elements, again, I, we started this podcast, I said, you know, I want to amplify these voices that haven't been told, tell these stories that I think have been, you know, told in the wrong way or not in the the, the full nuance uh, way. This was a perfect example of it, um, Rose's story. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Podcast Brunch Club. Hey there, podcast listeners. Join us at Podcast Brunch Club. It's like book club, but for podcasts. Every month, we put together a thematic podcast playlist, and then chapters in over 70 cities across the world get together to discuss the list and swap podcast recommendations. Find out more at podcastbrunchclub.com. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. And today I'm in conversation with award-winning documentary filmmaker and educator, Yoruba Richin. Question, have you seen The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks? It's a documentary that Yoruba co-directed, and it's streaming now live on Peacock. Now, I don't work for Peacock. I'm not advertising for Peacock, although I guess you could argue that I just did. But I'm advertising and advocating that you get to know Yoruba Richin and her documentary films. We first met indirectly when I saw her documentary, The Green Book, Guide to Freedom. And in preparation for today's episode, I did a deep dive. I watched the sit-in Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show, How It Feels to Be Free, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, and The Killing of Breonna Taylor. So trigger warning audience, we do talk about The Killing of Breonna Taylor and Yoruba's experience filming that documentary. Now we're going to get to the conversation. Before that, I have a request though. If you like the podcast and you would like to see it go and grow, and I hope you do, please share it with a friend. Tell your friends about it. Tell them to listen. Tell them to subscribe. Okay, let's get to the conversation where Yoruba is talking about documentary filmmaking and its coming of age. Really, the only places to watch documentary was PBS. Um, And, you know, I remember watching Eyes on the Prize and other documentaries, and it seemed like this amazing, um, this world that was like, oh, that's so this is so interesting and fascinating this history is being told this way but not something that you'd like make a living at you know um and uh i didn't you know in school in college i didn't take any i took maybe one film class it wasn't even a production class um and it wasn't until the 90s when i was in graduate school that i started uh where the technology got smaller where the cameras got smaller um and i um, started working with a friend of mine on uh, making videos. And it was something that, you know, I started learning from her and then just kind of um, went with, but it was a little bit of falling, falling into. Uh, And then in terms of the 
program. So I, again, my mom always taught. And as you said, you know, you have to figure out how you're going to um, make a living at this Um as you, you know, pursue your passion. And I, and this was also after I'd been at ABC News for, I was at ABC News for four years. Um, I was at Democracy Now! for two years. And so I had the journalism experience as well, um, uh, which was really good for me to sort of put in my pocket, even though I knew I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do what we called at the time long form filmmaking, you know, documentary filmmaking. But um, I basically started teaching at CUNY when my first film, Promised Land, was um, accepted to in the POV season in 2010. And the students came to me and they were like, uh, you're making documentaries. This is, We want to be learning that. <laughs> and so um, I worked with uh, uh, one of the administrators there to create this class um, of documentary, you know, which, no, this is, and this is maybe in 2011, 2012. Um, this, you know, there was no documentary class. And of course, at the same time, the industry was exploding, really exploding, which is why the students came to me. You know, that was the beginning of the streaming and Netflix and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, we, I created this class. It was, you know, one semester and then it slowly grew. It grew from one semester to, um, then a, uh, uh, like a, mo- I, no, maybe it was a module first, which is like a few weeks, then one semester and then a semester and a module. And then we were able to, um, bring it through the, you know, the, um, the uh the hoops that you have to do and make it a specialization so um this is and of course the first year that not of course but the first year that uh the student so students then applied to it were able to apply to the program um when they applied to uh to the school and we were able to accept them in and have a cohort of of students um uh you know, from the beginning. So the freshman, uh, uh, it's a three semester program, the whole journalism program. They take, they start the documentary specialization in the second semester. So in the spring semester. So they do the documentary specialization for two semesters and they come out with a uh, master's film, a capstone film. Um, and so we take them through and it's, I'm the head of it. I teach in the spring and then I bring in other, um, professors and mentors to teach as well. And we take them through the, you know, beginning of, uh, how you, you know, your idea, your concept through to, you know, getting your film made and, and screen. I'm just thinking what a treat for them to be able to work with you. Now, you know, you you started with, as you shared, you know, uh, Promised Land, and then you worked your way through, and now we're at The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. So I want to go a little granular and talk about some of these. Let's start with Brianna, Brianna Taylor, um, because there's a few things that struck me. So number one, you decided to start the documentary with the 911 call. You know, I knew I wanted to start. That was one of the um, one of the situations where I knew what I wanted to open with. That call was so harrowing. So that call had been made public, um, and it was so harrowing um, to hear, you know, what Kenny was, to Kenny talking to the police 
um, calling the ambulance, uh, that it just set the scene for the tragedy that unfolded um, and the, um, you know, what unfolded in terms of that night and uh, the experience, you know, him being the, the, the survivor of that night. Um, so it was just, you know, we were, it was, openings can be hard and difficult to figure out. Uh, but this one, it was clear to the whole team that we needed to start with this. Uh, I mean, it just said everything. Yeah. I really like hands and I watch hands and, um, they're very distinct to a person and to, um, even a personality and a way of being. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, in your shoots, in how you direct, not just um, The Killing of Breonna Taylor, but in some of the other films, there is a focus on people's hands and, and expressing themselves through their hands. It was very prominent in, in Breonna Taylor. Um, and that was for a couple of reasons. So that film was made in the, in the uh, we started shooting in the end of June of 2020, 2020. Um, she had been killed in March of 2020. And that was, you know, at the height of COVID. So uh, we had, that was my first production I did uh, during COVID. And we had very strict rules about, um, you know, how we shot, um, how we were going to shoot it. And one of the criteria is that everything had to be outside. So um, every, you know, this is during the time, if we remember, where people weren't like going inside places. Uh, and that um, that made us, we had to think creatively then, you know, what are we going to cut to? What are we going to, you know, use as, as B-roll? Um, but I also knew that I wanted it to be, um, the f I wanted it to have the, the, the film to have a feeling of shakiness and uh, it, and um, and confusion because that's what um, that was the situation. Uh, people did not know what happened. People didn't understand. We couldn't understand as a public why this young woman was killed by the police. Um, and uh, so I wanted that feeling of um, of you know of 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 um, confusion uh, and and uncertainty. And so uh, me, the DP and I talked a lot about that and, you know, what, how we can make that, um, how we could bring that to life. And one of the ways is to, was to focus on the, um, you know, the, the different parts of the body. Backing to trauma, like there's a lot of trauma. Um, there's a lot of trauma in these stories um, and in what people share with you. And I'm wondering the extent to which you're, you're aware of the trauma that you're receiving and absorbing. Yeah. I mean, with the Breonna Taylor specifically, um, it was from the moment we drove into Louisville um, and, uh, you know, shot the film over, over three weeks, basically, the trauma of the city was so palpable. And then the trauma of um, the family and, and friends and, and, and the community. Um, it really was a case of seeing how this murder had reverberated, not just in the family, not just, you know, in the, in the family community or the friend community, but the whole city. 
And it was intense. It was really, really intense. I mean, this had just happened a couple months ago. Um, the, uh, as I said, the city was also, you know, on, um, uh, experiencing, you know, the lockdown of COVID. Um, the, uh, protesters had taken over, uh, one of the squares and were holding vigil 24 hours. Um, and it, and the family was, you know, trying to find out information and the police weren't talking. And this young woman was dead and it was, and she was murdered in her own house. Um, Kenny was the first, you know, the interview we did with Kenny, her, um, her boyfriend was the first interview that he had done. Uh, you know, it was the first time he had, he had talked and told his side of the story. So the trauma was, was all over, you know, um, and, uh, it's, it was uh, seeing how the, the reverberation of, you're not just, you haven't just lost a daughter, um, which, you know, in and of itself is horrific, but the loss of a cousin, the loss of a friend, the loss of a, of a, of a workmate, that is really what, um, you know, that's what really pushed it over the top for me in terms of, you know, sort of you theoretically understand that, but when you're talking with people and you're hearing their stories, it is, um, it's, and you have to hold that as an interviewer, um, and as a filmmaker. Um, but I also think it's important to show that, you know, that you are, you know, that you're listening and that you care about the story and you want to get this story and get their story and get Brianna's story out there. And that's what I tried to do. Honoring and respecting their voice and, and holding space. And how do you work to create psychological safety for interviewees or, you know, when you're shooting? Yeah. Um, again, um, you know, the Brianna cases are really, I think the, the one to talk about in terms of that, I had a sense of there, there was information, there was a lot still that was unknown, right? As we um, made this film, there really was. And we, you know, didn't know the extent of her relationship, for example, with the previous boyfriend, who that was the reason that the cops say that they, uh, you know, were, had this warrant for her house because um, the, because, you know, they believe that they said they believe that she was, you know, storing drugs or money in, in the apartment. Nothing ever found, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, so there, there was still information that we did not know. And, um, we wanted to find out. I mean, we still wanted to, to, we knew that Brianna had been killed by the police. We knew this was wrong, no matter if she had 20,000 pieces of drug, you know, 20,000 kilos of drugs in her. Everyone deserves a trial, right? Everyone um, is, that's our, our system. Um, so the, we were still trying to find out information. And, um, and the, as I said, the police weren't talking that they had had, that they had their, um, they, there were audio recordings of their versions of what happened that we used in, in the film. But, um, we, you know, wanted to, to, to find out and, and I asked, sometimes asked their, I did ask their, her friends and family if they knew the previous boyfriend. 
And then I, um, and so I, I asked them and, you know, they answered me in whatever way they did. Some, some did know, know him, some didn't. And it was a situation where this, that's really all they had to say about it. And that's all I needed them to say about it. You know, that I didn't need to push them. I didn't need to have, uh, 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 to re-traumatize them in asking um, about this person, you know, um, and that they wouldn't, you know, that it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to be, it it wasn't going to be um, illuminating to the story. And there was no, and it wasn't, it wasn't going to, um, pushing them on this issue was not something that I needed to do. You know, it just wasn't, there were other people that, uh, there are other ways we could find out this information. Yeah. I think it's, you know, your heart, your energy, your brain, and, you know, I'm sure they decided this is, she's the real deal. I trust her and, you know, I'm going to speak. And I want to shift to how it feels to be free, which is such a beautiful documentary and, you know, one of the lines I took from that is when we see black women in television and film, it's an act of protest because of the fight to get there. And in this, you highlight Abby Lincoln, Lena Horne, Diane Carroll, Cicely Tyson, Nina Simone. It was just like an amazing, amazing, like Thanksgiving feast collection of people. Um, how important was this for you? Yeah, well, this was my my baby, my labor of love. Um, I took a long time to make that film. <laughs> uh, we, you know, I I had read the book that it's based on, that it's inspired by, uh, by Ruth Feldstein, called "How It Feels to Be Free: uh, African American Black Women Entertainers in the Civil Rights Movement." Um, and you know, in reading the book, I just felt like it was such an interesting take of uh, looking at how these women broke through and made an impact and were political, um, not a biography like birth to death thing, you know, but really looking at their impact and how they impacted audiences. And I thought that was such an important framework. Um, and I thought it was, was great. And I knew it would make a great film because these were amazing performers. And this kind of film had not been done before. Uh, and um, so, we, you know, I got, um, we got immediate interest from, from American Masters, um, and, and ITVS, which is a funding arm of PBS, initial interest, which was great. It allowed us to, you know, get the ball starting, started and get the ball rolling, but it took a number of years to get the money, uh, to really go full tilt. And, and make the film. So it was a process of five years. Um, and I worked with an amazing team, um, uh, my producers uh, here in, in the States, um, Truth Aid, and uh, we brought on, um, they were able to connect with a Canadian uh, production company, Yap Films, and they uh, help, you know, they were key in getting the film actually made um, and broadcast. So it was, it was a late, it was definitely one of those, this is my baby yeah. films. It, it felt, <laughs> and it I'll, felt, I'll stick with it till the end. <laughs> it felt loving and it felt like a love story and you were supporting these women and reflecting them again with love and just their honesty, their authenticity of like, this wasn't all pretty. I wasn't treated well. I couldn't get work, you know, and tying into the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, 
which is, you know, sort of the newest launch, the newest baby offspring. And same thing, like, you know, over and over again, we've seen on social, you know, everybody knows one event regarding Mrs. Rosa Parks, but her full life of advocacy and activism, and it, it wasn't without consequences in terms of having to geographically move her home, not being able to get a job, um, being poor, not being paid for her showing up at events and speaking the way the men were. Yeah. I mean, you just laid it out. Uh, when my co-director, I co-directed the film with Joanna Hamilton, um, my colleague, she came to me um, with the book, uh, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rose Park by Jean Theo Harris. And she was like, you know, would you be interested, take a look at this, read this, and would you be interested in working with me on this? And I read the book and exactly that, what you just outlined, the fact that we did not know the full story of the sacrifice that she made, the threats, the backlash that she faced, the economic insecurity for most of her life, um, the sidelining of uh, her work as as a woman uh, in the in the movement. It was all revelatory and and so important to tell the story and her militancy. Um, as well. So all those elements, again, I, we started this podcast, I said, you know, I want to amplify these voices that haven't been told, tell these stories that I think have been, you know, told in the wrong way or not in the the, the full nuance uh, way. This was a perfect example of it, um, Rose's story. So I immediately signed on to, you know, to be part of part of the the directing team. Yeah. One of the most beautiful and telling scenes was when Nelson Mandela lands, walks off the plane. All these people, all these people want his <laughs> attention, want to hug him, touch him. He yes. basically beelines it to Mrs. Rosa Parks and hugs her. Absolutely. And you know, that's funny because obviously, you know, you can't include anything in a documentary, but there was this part, uh, that we love that we actually didn't include in that section when he, uh, he, reads a part of his speech that he reads and he calls out Rosa Parks uh, as well. Uh, he's one of the only people that, uh, she's one of the only people that he, that he name checks. So um, yeah, I love that part too. Yeah. I want to speak a little bit about the sit-in Harry Belafonte when he hosted the tonight show in 1968. Um, he willed a world into being in that one week and what a star studded lineup um, this is a part of history that would be unknown, would be buried unless you had really brought it to the stage. This was another story where um, when I found out, um, when I was appro approached by the producers uh, to be part of, you know, to, to direct the film and then read about this week that I had no idea about. And, you know, when I have no idea about it is when I'm super interested so um, that he hosted this week, that the tapes were lost, uh, most of the tapes were lost, um, that it was Dr. King's last interview, and it was his interview before, and Robert Kennedy's, one of his last interviews. And then to be able to go into the relationships that uh, Harry had with these artists and these activists and these, and in 68, when the world was exploding. So through this week, we tell, uh, you know, Harry's story, 
his relationship, how fundamental he was to bringing activism to uh, Hollywood. Also, too, him being, um, you know, I look at him as he's one of the first multimedia stars, a star of of the music and stage and screen. Um, and just his, you know, who he was as or who he is as um, such a important entertainer and activist and how he was able to create this world on The Tonight Show. Um, He really demonstrated the entertainer as activist and that entertainers could be activists. Yep. Yep. He was, he's the model. Yeah. Uh, And entertainers today look at him, cite him as the model. What can we look to next from you? I am working on a film about reparations uh, for PBS, uh, looking at the issue of reparations, which is, you know, uh, an issue whose time has come. And then, excuse me, also working on a uh, film that I'm co-directing about uh, the Wilmington insurrection of 1898, which Wilmington, North Carolina, which is the first uh, the its claim to fame is that it was the only successful political insurrection uh, where um, you know that happened in in the U.S. where the end of Reconstruction, uh, uh, a, a multiracial local government was overthrown um, by white supremacists, um, and so we're telling that story. What a great conversation and deep gratitude and thanks to Yoruba for making time to sit and record and speak with me. I love the conversation and I love discussing her films. Uh, What I love about all the ones I watched are she has um, taken the voice of her mother, her mother who is a playwright, who is an activist in New York City. She's taken the voice of New York in all of its diversity, all of its color, all of its extremes. And through these experiences, through these people, as well as her own voice and finding her own voice, Yoruba basically chooses stories and storytelling in a way that fills in the facts, corrects history, informs us of history that perhaps history books left out, and overall teaches us lessons, lessons that we can take to our heart, take to our head to try to move forward and be better as a society. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.